So what's up everybody? Welcome to Celluloid Fever Dreams, a weekly dive into cinematic history where I pick an underappreciated or overlooked film uh, and try to make the case for why more people should watch it. And at the end of this episode, answer the most important question of all. Was it entertaining? As always, I'm your host, the late, the great, the overweight, Wyndham Jennings. Hope this week's been good to all of you so far. Uh, It's been a little rough for me. Got some uh, changes at work, some new things we got to do, some new training I've got to go through. Uh, On the good news, for two weeks in a row now, I've made a dent in my list of films I want to see that uh, aren't part of the podcast, or maybe not part of the podcast yet. Um, Also went back and rewatched an old favorite of mine. Uh, On the newer movie front, I watched uh, Boss Level, which is currently on Hulu. Well, let me rephrase that. All three of the movies I watched this this past week are on Hulu. I watched Boss Level with uh, Naomi Watts and uh, Frank Grillo and uh, Mel Gibson, surprisingly. Uh, Willie's Wonderland with Nicolas Cage and uh, Vacation Friends with John Cena. Uh, out of the three, Boss Level turned out to be my favorite. Uh, I went in just liking the trailer, but it actually turned out to be a, a pretty decent story. Uh, not just a, you know, not just the gimmick of him dying and going back day after day and trying to beat the assassins that have been sent after him. Uh, you know, it was a surprisingly kind of a tender plot in there about him reconnecting with his son using the uh, loop in order to get to know his, his uh, child a little better. Uh, and then Willie's Wonderland, which was just bizarre Nicolas Cage in, in all the right ways. Uh, I, I liked it, not as much as I did Boss Level. Uh, and then watched, uh, like I said, Vacation Friends, which uh, out of the three, that's probably the one that the trailer pretty much sets the tone for the entire movie. There was nothing surprising about it. Uh, I enjoyed it. Uh, I'd probably watch it again if, if somebody wanted to watch and they hadn't seen it again, but it's not one I'm going to keep going back to. Uh, uh, I did really like the chemistry between the four leads in it. Though. Uh, but like I said, if you've seen the trailer, you know what you're getting into. You know, there were no surprises uh, like there were in the other two films. Uh, and I went back and I rewatched Galaxy Quest, which is still really hilarious. Uh, and, and, and for me personally, it's not one I really think about a whole lot when I'm thinking about uh, comedy sci-fi movies. You know, for, for me, it's always uh, Mel Brooks' Spaceballs. This first one always pops into my mind. Uh, this week, the movie we're talking about is Wolfen. And when I first looked it up, the, uh, the tagline on the poster didn't really make a whole lot of sense. It was just, there is no defense. Uh, okay. I, I mean, I, I guess that works. It's a horror movie. Um, but the the uh, original one, I found another poster online that had a, a much longer, uh, I guess you say it's almost a preamble uh, to the title that I liked a lot better. And it says, uh, they can hear a cloud pass overhead, the rhythm of your blood. They can track you by yesterday's shadow. They can tear the scream from your throat. There is no defense. Wolfen. Uh, this is actually adapted from a novel that came out in 1979 called The Wolfen, uh, written by Whitley Stryber, uh, his debut novel, as a matter of fact. Uh, to date, he has written uh, 30 fiction titles and 14 nonfiction titles, uh, and several have been adapted uh, into movies or television shows, including the Catherine Deneuve and David Bowie film The Hunger, based on one of his novels, the uh, 1987 Christopher Walken movie Communion, which is actually based on uh, two of his nonfiction books, which are accounts of his abductions by visitors in the 80s. Uh, oh, no, wait, sorry. The book Communion was 1987. The uh, movie with Christopher Walken was uh, 1989. It combined the, his uh, nonfiction book Communion and uh, Transformation. 
his book Alien Hunter was adapted into the sci-fi channel TV show Hunters, and the movie The Day After Tomorrow was written, uh, sorry, was based on uh, one of his nonfiction books, actually, Becoming Global Superstorm, which he wrote with Art Bell. Uh, and if uh, the name Art Bell uh, is familiar, actually, for a second there, start to say if the name Art Bell rings a bell, but I luckily avoided that pun. If Art Bell uh, sounds familiar, he was the host of the uh, radio program Coast to Coast, which would deal a lot of times with uh, mysteries and uh, paranormal activities and alien abductions, UFO sightings, etc., things like that. Uh, Bell actually went on record several times as saying that he didn't believe every story he reported or that people called in and talked about. Uh, he just felt like uh, it was his duty to provi- provide a judgment-free zone for people to tell these stories uh, and not be heckled or mocked for what had happened to them. Uh, weirdly, I, I did not know uh, Whitley Stryber had written so much. In fact, uh, given my own interests uh, in you know, paranormal activities and, and uh, UFOs and, and conspiracies and whatnot, I mainly knew of Whitley Stryber through communion, through the movie and uh, through the work he's done, uh, talking about his abduction and uh, He's also done interviews about you know, a lot of the stuff that Art Bell would talk about as well. In fact, uh, if I remember right, Stryber actually took over hosting uh, one of Art Bell's programs uh, after Bell retired. Uh, I always found it interesting that uh, Stryber never refers to the uh, visitors who abducted him as aliens. He, he never takes that, that step. He just refers to them always as visitors, as he himself says that he's not even sure where they're from or what, what their agenda is, so he just prefers the neutral term, visitors. Uh, Wolfen was one of the first movies released by Orion Pictures, which was founded in 1978, as a venture between Warner Brothers Studios and three former United Artists executives. Uh, they had a good run from like the late 70s to the early 90s, uh, and then they were folded into or were so, went bankrupt and were sold uh, to other companies. But uh, I think the uh, company has been relaunched as an imprint for a larger larger studio. Uh, Orion seemed to be everywhere when I was a kid. There was a ton of movies they released that I still love. I mean, you were talking uh, the Bo Derek movie 10, uh, Caddyshack, Time After Time. They were the American distributor for uh, Monty Python's Life of Brian. They won an Oscar for Amadeus. They released Madonna's first movie, Desperately Seeking Susan, uh, Platoon, Robocop, No Way Out, She-Devil, Weird Al's UHF, Dances with Wolves, Silence of the Lambs, Uh, and they had some good people behind the scenes. Michael Wadley was brought on to uh, direct, and he also co-wrote the script. Uh, His biggest work, this this was the third film he had ever made, uh, the only non-documentary film. Uh, his, his biggest work was the uh, documentary on Woodstock, uh, called, appropriately enough, uh, Woodstock. Uh, this would also be, to date, his only uh, non-fiction film and his last film whatsoever. He has not done uh, anything, documentary style or uh, fiction, since 1981 in this film. Uh, I think a lot of that was he had problems with the studio, uh, they ran over budget. Uh, they ran over time. Uh, his first edit of the film that he turned in was like four. Hang on, let me double check my notes. Like four and a half. Yeah, four and a half hours long. 
for a, a supernatural thriller set in New York City. Uh, the finished film, the one that was released to theaters and is available uh, on DVD or Blu-ray, uh, comes in at around 100 minutes. And even then, I think there's still some things that could be trimmed out. I mean, it's a pretty tight story. Uh, but, yeah, I, I just do still think there's a couple of scenes, a couple of little things that could be taken out to make it a little better. Uh, so what's it about? Well, uh, uh, as always, we start with our uh, two-second synopsis, which in this case amounts to... Uh, Weird stuff happens. A New York City police captain is brought out of retirement in order to investigate the murder of a real estate tycoon and his wife in a local park. What he uncovers is a pack of wolves with near-human-level intelligence who are hunting the homeless and the poor down in the South Bronx and who have attacked the realtor in an effort to stop a high-rise being built on top of their hunting ground. Uh, I hadn't read the book, but... uh, in the book, and uh, I, I actually posted a picture on my Twitter of the uh, artist Wayne Barlow, who put out a book in the early 80s where he picked different uh, novels and drew what he felt was the most interesting character or the monster out of them in his style. And they're very, it's a very beautiful book. Uh, I think I still have a copy of it, actually, that I got uh, from way back then. But he chose Wolfen, and the, uh, and the picture he did is... It, you know, if it is based on the book, what they're supposed to look like in the book is a very disturbing picture. It's one of those that, um, you know, like the longer you look at it, the more wrong you see in it. It's uh, very identifiable as a wolf. However, the limbs are much longer. The uh, front paws especially are extended, are very, you know, hand-like, almost like a monkey's hand. The uh, head of them, the snout has gotten very blunt and starting to take on more human features that you know, it ties into the idea that they have adapted to live among humans and uh, they're evolving. You know, they're getting smarter. They're getting uh, more like us. Uh, in, a, in a lot of ways, it kind of uh, echoes uh, the uh, movie Mimic, which came out in the 90s, you know, with the giant cockroaches who had learned to mimic humans so that they could feed upon us. The uh, movie doesn't follow through with that. Uh, they don't really sink a lot into the wolfen. In fact, you don't really get to see a good look at them until uh, almost the climax of the film. You get to hear them a lot. Uh, you get to see a lot of shots from their point of view. In fact, this film is uh, one of the first to use a thermographic uh, camera to mimic what the uh, how the Wolfen experienced the world. So you get these shots of New York City, but then it'll suddenly shift, and the sound will be a little different. Uh, you know, the the look especially. It's is not the infrared that uh, became famous in Predator. You know, you don't see the bright reds and the blues and, and all that like the Predator does. What you get is uh, more pixelated. The sky will black out. Uh, the colors of the ground will look wrong. There'll be almost like halos around uh, certain objects and people. Uh, it is very much, uh, if you've seen the Beastie Boys video, so what you want, it's that effect. Um Strangely enough, saying that and having watched the film uh, Vacation Buddies, they actually recreate just exactly what I'm talking about in one scene of the film where two of the characters get high on uh, magic mushrooms and even use So What You Want by the Beastie Boys to score the scene. But yeah, it, it does provide a very alien look to the film. And then they use steady cam and uh, other you know, trick shots in order to try to really give you the idea that this is the animal's point of view. The way they'll 
move the camera as low as it is to the ground, the way it'll shimmy side to side like a, a predator hunting. Uh, it, to me, it's a very effective way of of uh, getting you into the story, you know, into the uh, monster's head, which, you know, in the book, it is told from some points of view, from what I understand, like I said, I hadn't read it, just online looking at summaries and reviews of it. It is told part of the way from the Wolfen's point of view. So for a film, I can see them doing this and trying to get you into you know how they experience the world and you know, sort of tease you as to what they're doing and how they're planning around what the uh, characters are doing. Uh, and the film has some really wonderful shots in it. There's uh, especially towards the end as the detective who's, uh, dete- I mean, uh, sorry, not detective, the officer, uh, Captain Dewey, is trying to piece all of it together, trying to find the connection between um, the realtor's death and you know the, the missing people down in the South Bronx, the homeless, you know the the poor, the ones who are struggling with some kind of addiction. You know how does it all tie together? And he's sitting in front of a uh, series of blinds, like vertical lines, but they're mirrored. So you get this wonderful effect of him sitting there in the chair, staring, and his face just split up into all of these different views and and uh, just repeating endlessly and it's just a great shot and especially the expression on his face it just sort of drives home all the uh, you know possibilities and the ideas pouring through his head and a, a good reason for that is that the cinematographer on the film is jerry fisher who has worked on a, a lot of good films uh, highlander uh, yellowbeard uh, the adventures of sherlock holmes smarter brother the uh, 1977 version of Island of Dr. Moreau. Of course, a lot of the heavy lifting for the uh, setting of the film uh, was actually New York City itself. Uh, The Wolfen's Hunting Ground, the uh, South Bronx area that just looks like it was hit by a bomb, uh, is all natural. There was nothing... Well, the only thing that was built for the film is the ruined church that the Wolfen live in the basement of. Uh, Everything else in the area, the piles of rubble, the buildings being torn down, the abandoned buildings, the burned-out buildings—you know—all of that area just that looks, uh, as Ronald Reagan put it, when he took office in nineteen uh, in the 1980s, looks like London after the Blitz is just that section of New York City. Uh, New York City in the 70s was not a—I uh, don't want to say it wasn't—I didn't live there, but just on film and just what you would see in the news, it, it was really rough. The city nearly went bankrupt. It uh, barely stayed above, uh, you know, stayed insolvency through most of the 70s. Rolling blackouts, uh, fires, especially through some of the poorer neighborhoods, Son of Sam. In fact, the uh, film Fort Apache, The Bronx, is uh, based in in, uh, almost the same area of New York City and is based on the actual 41st precinct, which did call itself Fort Apache, after the 1948 John Ford movie. Uh, this particular section of the Bronx was so bad that the local fire department uh, house was the busiest in New York City because of the number of fires and other emergencies. And so the city actually sanctioned and built a backup firehouse in order to handle the uh, you know calls that the, the original one couldn't. And it very quickly became the fourth busiest uh, firehouse in new york city for the time you know, there's a reason in the 70s uh, some dystopian and post-apocalyptic and sci-fi movies chose to film in new york uh, you know to show the collapse of civilization uh, in fact according to my research as i was trying to you know look into the film and, and the making of it and all there's some conflicting uh conflicting things 
based on what site I went to and who was telling the story about the area around the church. Because as I said, it looks like the entire area has been bombed or burned out. And according to some sources, they actually moved rubble out of the area so that it would film better. So they could get better lines of sight and get better shots. According to some uh, accounts, they actually brought in more rubble for the same reason. And according to uh, some other accounts, they moved the rubble around to make it more aesthetically pleasing and also took some away and brought some more back in. So everyone to look at it. And if you're really interested to see what I'm talking about, the church was built at uh, Seabury, Pal- Seabury Place and 172nd Street. I know that probably doesn't mean a whole lot to uh, a lot of you, but there was a blog I come across while doing research for the film called for this episode called NYC in Film. And in 2019, he actually went out to try to find where they filmed Wolfen at and take shots uh, of the movie and then try to get what those sites look like today. And it is just unbelievable the difference. You know, this blasted out, ruined church with all the rubble around it is now a series of, like, single-family homes in a decent neighborhood. It's just really, really jarring to kind of see how, and, and I know you can sit here and say, well, it's 40 years, what do you expect? But at the same time, it is just kind of amazing. But the thing is, Wolfen also hit in that time that New York was uh, bouncing back. Things were starting to look up. They were starting to do urban renewal projects, like in the film. And it's just... You really want to see how, how big of a difference it is in the way New York City is portrayed. Wolfen's one of the last films that sort of shows the urban decay and everything is wrong with New York. From here on out, it starts to become the city that more of us are familiar with from film and television. You know, bright lights, everything looks nicer. You know, everything looks upscale. Uh, you really want to see a difference in how fast things turned around. Watch this movie and then go and watch Ghostbusters and realize Ghostbusters is just three years later. It's a little jarring to just sit there and see the difference uh, in the city just in that short of a time between these two films. Uh, as much as I love the cinematography, I also got to give a shout out to the uh, music in the film. I think it's appropriate. It really provides a uh, you know good counterbalance. It sort of helps bring you into the mood, especially the sounds and and uh, some of the music played underneath the Wolfen's point of view, and uh, that's actually because it's done by James Horner. And if the name sounds familiar, well, he scored a little movie called Titanic. Some of the other movies that he's done, though, include Humanoids from the Deep, uh, Battle Beyond the Stars, Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, Kroll, Willow, Rocketeer, Jumanji, and James Cameron's Aliens. Uh, Horner wasn't the original composer for the film. Uh, He was brought on after the studio parted ways with the original composer, whose name I didn't put in the notes, Horner composed the entire score for the, this film in 12 and a half days, though. Uh, I wouldn't know that. I mean, honestly, it, it does fit with the film. Uh, I, I do like it. It's not, one, it's not a soundtrack I want to buy, but uh, it does really fit in well with the movie and help the mood of the film and, and help, you, uh, help draw you into what's going on. So it does its job. Uh, but like I said, uh, Captain Dewey, who's played by Albert Finney, whose first role was in 1960, 1960's The Entertainer, but also has done such things as uh, playing Hercule Poirot, the 1974 version of Murder on the Orient Express. He also had roles in The Duelists. Uh, in 1981, he actually had two other films besides this one. Besides Wolfen, he also uh, starred in Looker, 
and Loophole. He was Daddy Warbucks in the 80s version of Annie. His last uh, film appearance was in the James Bond film Skyfall. Uh, and he also has a big role playing the uh, dad in the film Big Fish, which is one I'm probably going to talk about it at some point. But if you hadn't seen it, go out and watch it. I really love the film. But uh, yeah, Dewey has teamed up with psychologist uh, Dr. Neff, played by Diane Van- Venora. Diane Venora. This is her first film role. She had done uh, Broadway shows. She had done uh, Shakespeare, you know, things like that. Uh, in fact, Wadley deliberately went out and tried to find people who hadn't been in films before or who had not, didn't have a lot of film experience because he thought they would bring something different to the roles and uh, to the film itself. Uh, Venora also had roles in uh, The Cotton Club, uh, FX, Heat, uh, Romeo and Juliet, uh, 13th Warrior. Her most recent role was in the film Cherish the Day. Uh, Neff's specialty happens to be uh, terrorist groups. There's a scene that's, I'm not even sure, I'm not sure it's supposed to be funny, but it still made me chuckle where Dewey starts asking her about uh, terrorist groups that she's studying and their favorite ways of executing people. So you get this nice little like minute-long scene of her listing horrible things that terrorists do to people and him just sitting there calmly eating a hot dog. That, and that all seems like Dewey's supposed to be so jaded. Like there's a At the beginning of the film, there's a huge sequence of him going to the uh, scene of the crime and then going into the morgue and the whole time he's eating and he's carrying groceries and he's got his paper in his hand and he's sort of reading it and he's just completely unaffected by all of this uh, and you know and i just gotta ask off the record was albert finney ever a young man i mean i, mean, I looked it up because i was honestly curious and he's only like 40 in this movie but i cannot remember him ever looking younger than like 57 which is what he looks like in this film uh, Dustin Hoffman actually lobbied for the role of Captain Dewey, but uh, Wadley turned him down. Uh, a few of the sites I went to actually made the case that maybe the film would have done better and, and uh, been better remembered if Hoffman had taken the role. Uh, me, personally, I love Dustin Hoffman. I, I would not say he couldn't pull a role off, but I just cannot picture him as the police captain in this. You know, To me, Finney has that run-down alcoholic had to leave the force for quote-unquote personal problems look about him you know this sort of world weariness that uh, at the time from what i can remember about dustin hoffman he just did not have uh, helping them try to figure out what's going on is uh, the morgue attendant whittington played by gregory hines and only his second film role his first was the mel brooks movie history of the world part one uh, he also had several roles throughout the 80s including running scared with billy crystal uh, he also appeared in the Cotton Club, uh, in the 90s film Eve of, Eve of Destruction, uh, Waiting to Exhale. Uh, his last role was The Root. Uh, Neff is convinced that it is terrorists, of course, that it's you know human agents behind all these disappearances, and, you know the, the political motive behind slaying the uh, real estate tycoon. Uh, Dewey actually follows a lead that it might be uh, local Native Americans who do a lot of the work for the skyscra- on the skyscrapers and the bridges of the city. Uh, and he tracks down one that he sent to jail like 11, year, 11 or 12 years ago who had been released and was working on a construction project uh, near where the uh, murders happened and who was also a political activist. Uh, Eddie, played by uh, Edward, Edward James Olmos. His first film was in uh, the 70s. It was Bogard, a.k.a. Blackfist, 1975. Uh, he's also appeared in Blade Runner, 
uh, Stand and Deliver, Selena, his uh, Adama and Battlestar Galactica. Uh, most recently, he's been seen in the TV series Mayans MC. And this is where we start getting to the supernatural aspect of the story. There's a s- small group of people who, for some reason, want to lump Wolfen in as a werewolf movie. And they talk about just the third big werewolf movie from 1981 because it came out after uh, The Howling, which is, of course, a classic werewolf film. Uh, American Werewolf in London, again, classic werewolf film, my all-time favorite uh, werewolf film. Uh, followed at a close second by The Curse of the Werewolf, starring Oliver Reed from 1961. Uh, but Wolfen is not a werewolf movie. They do take this diversion where, of course, Dewey talks to Eddie, and Eddie explains that, you know, they do have the power to shapeshift. He can turn into a wolf or a bird, or he can turn into a salmon. Uh, and Dewey, to his credit, actually follows up on this, trailing Eddie one night to see if he can turn into an animal. Uh, and I will warn you, you will see a lot of naked Edward James almost. Uh, so adjust your expectations of this film accordingly. Uh, but while Eddie doesn't turn into a werewolf, and in fact there are no werewolves in the movie, just a, as I said, a pack of wolves with near-human level intelligence, he is aware of them. He explains that before the settlers came to America, before the Dutch colonized Manhattan, that the tribes lived alongside the Wolfen for 20,000 years. Uh, One of Eddie's friends actually calls the Wolfen their brother. Uh, An older member of the group filling Eddie in about the history of the Wolfen quickly corrects him, saying, not brothers, another tribe. Uh, Which I thought was really interesting because it sort of gives the idea that the Wolfen didn't become this intelligent to adapt to the city coming up around them like they've always been. Like this this group of wolves, this offshoot of wolves, has always possessed an intelligence far greater than you would normally find uh, in a wolf. Uh, in, in fact, in the original book, according to my research, and uh, in the Wayne Barlow Wolfen entry from his book, they're listed as Canis Lupus Sapien. Uh, Dewey and Whittington bring in the services of Ferguson, who uh, works at the local zoo and is a uh, wolf expert, played by Tom Noonan, his first film appearance. We've covered Tom Noonan before. He was the uh, older man in the House of the Devil, the one that hired the girl, the uh, one who is the leader. Well, I ain't going to spoil it. He's he's, uh, in the House of the Devil. Go and check it out. Uh, as, As I've said before, his first film was Willie and Phil in 1980, He's appeared in Heaven's Gate. He appeared in FX alongside uh, Diane Venora. Uh, He was Frankenstein in The Monster Squad. He is the villain in RoboCop 2. Uh, Mentioned House of the Devil. uh, Schenectady, New York. I always have trouble saying that. Uh, He is in that. He was in Manhunter, which is the first uh, book, first movie based on the uh, Thomas Harris books. He was the, uh, he was Dollar Hyde. He was the killer in it. Really good. Really got uh, Gotta go check it out if you hadn't yet. I mean, Silence of the Lambs is great, but I, I do have a soft spot for Manhunter and uh, for Tom Noonan's performance in it. Uh, there's a couple of cameos. One I can confirm. The other one, if it's not him, I couldn't find him listed in the credits anywhere, but if it's not this guy, it is, it is someone that looks exactly like him. Uh, one of the morgue attendants who only has a couple of lines, one of them uh, where he slaps the corpse that he's... Uh, wheeling in saying that he should have left that girl alone is uh, played by Reginald Vell Johnson 
uh, whose two biggest roles I'm, I could go through his entire, but honestly, you're going to know him from one of two things. You're either going to know him as Sergeant Powell from the original Die Hard, or you're going to know him as Carl from Family Matters. Uh, and the other one is just a random homeless person next to a flaming dump, uh, flaming uh, barrel, metal barrel, uh, who they show for a couple of scenes. And I swear to God, it is Stephen Williams. It looks so much like him. Uh, he was the captain on the original 21 Jump Street uh, television series back in the 80s. Uh, he started in Cooley High back in the 70s. He was the one of the troopers. It was the trooper uh, chasing the Blues Brothers and the film The Blues Brothers. Uh, he recently appeared in the uh, It movies. He was in Jason Goes to Hell. He's, he's just been in a ton of stuff. And I swear to God, if that's not him, it's got to be his twin brother, his clone, something. And they linger on him like he's supposed to be somebody important. And he may have been. You know, it, There is a four-and-a-half-hour cut of this movie out there. So who knows? You know, He, he may have... May have been the lookout look for the wolf, and, and you know they were paying him, I don't know, and, and the money they found in other people's park pockets. Uh, overall, as a, a monster movie, uh, I I like it. Uh, and the thing about the thing about it is, like I said, I mentioned the uh, book wolfen are much more uh, human like, or I guess because proper term would be much more anthropomorphic, without actually coming up on two legs. And like I said, they just look wrong. There's just something about them that triggers that little thing in the back of your head that the longer you look at it, the more wrong it seems. Uh, and in the movie, they kind of set them up like that. Like, you know, they don't just bite people. Like, in the opening scene, they kill the bodyguard. The first thing they do is they bite his hand clean off. You know, there's one scene where they take a guy's uh, head completely off in one bite. And they're incredibly strong. Uh, they're running across a bridge at night. One of them's running across a bridge at night, and a construction worker gets in his way, and he, you, you don't actually see, you just see the thing run at him, and then a shot of this guy going up and over, like several feet over the side of the bridge, and falling to his death. Uh, another guy, they're hunting through the park, and he's on a, a, mo, a moped, or a mo, uh, no, it, it's not really a moped, it's almost like a dirt bike, it's a small motorcycle, and... You know, one of them charges him and hits him and knocks him like 20 feet through the air off of this bike. I mean, they're just incredibly smart, uh, ruthless. They can track, they you know, track people. Uh, they employ strategies to, you know, get around people. There's even a scene, I didn't even mention about this, when uh, Neff and Dewey go to investigate the church. There's one of them hiding in the darkness, and it starts mimicking a baby's cry in order to lure Neff closer to it so that it can kill her. They're literally trying to split her and Dewey up, and Dewey figures out it's a trick and gets them out of there. And you know, just that, there's all these things that they do to set them up. They're these fantastic creatures, and then when you finally get a good look at them, they're just wolves. There's nothing special about them. There's nothing to them. One of them solid white. Most of the rest of them are black. Uh, and they try to shoot them. I think they're trying to imply that they're bigger than an average wolf because you never really get a good shot of them close to the actors. Uh, they they don't. I don't think they really do a forced perspective, but they do kind of shoot them. You know, up. You know, when they when they do surround people, they tend to be up on ledges or on the top of cars. Or something to give them a little more height, a little more advantage. But at the end of the day, they're wolves. And they don't look that... I mean, I'm not knocking wolves. I mean, I, if I was out in the wild and run across a wolf, 
I would definitely be be scared of it. But at the same time, after all this buildup in this film, they're wolves. They're just wolves, and they're very pretty wolves. Uh, you know, and again, I want to point out, this is the same year we got The Howling. This is the same year we got you know, one of the greatest werewolf transformations of all time ever put on screen in American Werewolf in London. And they went with wolves, really pretty wolves. They didn't even bother to put dirt on them. Like, you know, you'd expect from animals living in rubble and in you know, a very decayed part of the city. Uh, now, a lot has been made, I did find this out in my research, uh, a lot has been made over the years about the environmental messages of this film, and I'm guessing there are some, and that we shouldn't mess with nature, or I don't know, maybe we shouldn't kill off the wolves or something, or that maybe we're not the top of the food chain. You, you can go look them up yourselves. To me, the things that stuck with me, uh, the climax of the film, if you can even call it that, is Dewey and Neff are surrounded by the wolves who have somehow managed to get up the side of the building uh, into the penthouse apartment of the guy that they killed to begin with. And he communicates to them that they're going to leave the wolves alone by destroying the model of the condos that the real estate tycoon was going to develop over top of their hunting grounds. Basically saying that we'll leave, you know, that, that the city's going to leave them alone and just let them have that section of the South, of, uh, South Bronx. I mean, I'm not really sure what the message of this is all supposed to be. I mean, I get that they may have been going for, hey, we need to leave the natural world alone. But looking back at it, it it's not really a good message in a film in that they had been hunting, uh, you know, well, even, uh, you know, Eddie explains, they cull the herd. They find the weak. They find the, uh, you know, the old, the infirm, the sick, you know the uh, the ones that nobody's going to miss, and that's the ones that they hunt. That's the ones that they kill and they eat. Oh, and I forgot to mention they're even smart enough they don't eat diseased parts. Like that's how I even found found out that these people were being eaten was they found the parts the wolfen didn't eat, and uh, Whittington figured out that these were you know like livers that had cirrhosis in them. You know they're that smart they can diagnose diseases. Uh, and I got to give a special shout out to the a mannequin head covered in maggots that was supposed to be the severed head of one of the victims. You go, you. But, but and I say that because that uh, Whittington brings up, uh, talking about for some reason, the French Revolution, and that your head can stay alive for a few seconds after it leaves your body. And then when somebody does lose their head later on in the film, they bothered to shoot it in a way that they could get the actual actor's head and have him like open in his mouth like he was still aware for a few seconds after he'd lost his head. And yet, for the homeless guy, you just did a mannequin head and poured, manic, and poured maggots all over it. Which, again, goes indirectly into the messages of, of this film, looking back on it and watching it. I'm not saying it's a bad movie, but, like I said, these wolfen have been feeding for, you know, since the founding of New York City, uh, culling the herd, again, to go back to what Eddie was saying, of people that won't be missed. And the only reason that they even, you know, that... Dewey and Whittington and Eddie and Neff even find out about them is because they attack a rich white guy and his wife who are coked out of their heads and wandering around Battery Park at six in the morning. And and what does the movie end on? The movie ends on, hey, we won't let the rich people uh, restore this area of the city so that you can keep feeding on the homeless and you know those with addictions and you know those with mental illnesses that can't get help. And the poor, uh, so long as you don't 
eat any more rich white people. I mean, that's literally the beginning and the ending of the movie. It's, hey, you ate a rich white guy. We're not happy with that, but we're willing to let you keep eating everybody down here in this blasted out, burned out area of the Bronx. So long as you just stay down there and eat them and don't bother coming up to Wall Street or some of the nicer parts of the city and you're feeding on the rich white people again. I mean, that that, that is the film. Uh, in fact, I saw so many people, I could I could barely find stories on the making of the film because there was so many stuff, so much stuff had come up in my search, search for things about the film that was just people going back and talking about the politics of the film, talking about the environmental message, talking about the positive portrayal of native americans in the film about how they touch you know the film touched on duck the dutch colonizing america and just all these little things and nobody really bothered to look at what kicked off the investigation and what stopped the wolfen from killing dewey at the end the deal he kind of made with them so i was really and it got me curious about what did contemporary critics think about the film uh, and my favorite line, uh, looking through several of them, come from Vincent Canby of the New York Times. And I just want to go ahead and say, I don't really care about critics. There's nothing in a critic's opinion that makes it any more valid than mine or yours or anyone else who's seen the movie. Ignore my, my opinion all you want to. I'm just doing this for entertainment purposes. But Vincent Canby of the New York Times had my favorite take, contemporary take, on uh, Wolfen when he called it The Thinking Man's Alligator. Uh, and if you're not familiar with Alligator, it was a creature feature from, uh, I think it was 1980, 81, uh, about a father who uh, come back from vacation with his family from, to Florida. A little girl had a alligator, and he flushed it down the toilet. And 11 years later, a like 25 to 30-foot alligator comes roaring out of New York City sewers and starts eating people around the city. That is the film that that vincent can be compared wolfen to he calls it the thinking man's alligator uh, so when all said and done uh, let's lay wolfen before the most important question we can ask of anything was it entertaining yeah i, I mean at the end of the day it's not a perfect film uh, the politics of it especially in light of today are a little messed up to say the least uh, but it it is a good performance. I mean, you know, Finney and uh, Venora, Hines, Olmos, Noonan, all of them. Uh, and, you know, the whole cast is, is really well. Uh, you know, Finney, you know, Dewey and Neff, they have a, a weird chemistry, but they do have a chemistry together that, that works for the film. Uh, I don't really completely buy them as a romantic couple. Uh, Gregory Hines is always a joy to watch. Uh, Tom Noonan, uh, for once, isn't playing the creepy guy in the film. Uh, and Edward James Olmos, I really like him as Eddie. Uh, I, I think I always just, just every time I hear the name Edward James Olmos, I picture him in these serious roles. You know, especially from, from considering stuff like, you know, Stand and Deliver, uh, Selena, uh, Blade Runner, things like that. That you know, he, he's always the, you know the serious and stoic and and. Uh, you know, I guess the voice of reason, you know, the, the guy that should be in charge. And to see him as Eddie, to see the way that he taunts uh, Albert Finney's Dewey, you know, to see that kind of joy and, and uh, just that mischief isn't something I've seen a lot in him. And I really liked uh, his performance in the film. Uh, I mean, it's not a werewolf movie. It is a creature movie. 
they could have done better with the creatures or even i don't i don't know maybe if they'd made the wolves look like they lived in rubble and were filthy or something like i don't i don't know there's just a few missteps i think that really to me keep it from being a great uh horror movie uh, but it is worth a watch Espe- you know especially just to look at the new york city of the time uh, and like i said and then pick another movie set in new york city from just a year or two or three later and just how quickly the city turned around from this era you know uh, wolfen is noted as one of the last films to showcase the uh down years of new york city uh, i happen to own wolfen on dvd i bought it for a dollar at a flea market which you would know if you followed me on instagram at celluloid fever dreams but if you would like to check out wolfen and you don't have a flea market that you can buy it from from a dollar you can rent it from apple tv amazon youtube voodoo or direct tv or you can buy it and download it from them i would suggest renting it uh, so that's going to wrap it up for this week. Uh, I guess I should tell you what we're going to do next week. Uh, next week's going to be another listener request, weirdly enough. Uh, I mean, it's not weird if you guys want to suggest a film. I mean, at the end of every episode, I tell you suggest a film. But uh, it is a film that they want to hear me talk about that is on my list of films I wasn't really sure I was going to do a podcast about. Just because I feel like so many people have done podcasts, uh, episodes about this film. But uh, next week, I'm going to dive into the film that everybody says you could not make today. Uh, And honestly, I do not believe that, really. You don't think we could make this movie today? We're going back to 1974. Mel Brooks' Blazing Saddles is our film for next week. Gene Wilder, Cleavon Little, Harvey Corman, in one of the craziest westerns ever made. Uh, and once again, if you like what you heard, tell a friend. If you didn't, uh, well, tell an enemy. Either way, uh, wherever you got this from, please leave a review. It helps me find new listeners. Uh, it helps the algorithm suggest me to more people, etc., etc. Uh, it makes you a good person. It'll get you into heaven. Uh, no, seriously, you know that thing? You know that thing? You know what I'm talking about. That, yeah. He'll overlook that. Just leave me a good review. Five stars. Six if you can. I don't care. Cheat the system. Uh, if you'd like to get in touch with me, uh, well, you can find me on Twitter at CFeverDreams. Find me on TikTok at CelluloidFeverDreams. Uh, if you're interested in t-shirts or buttons or stickers or magnets or, I don't know, just if you want to give me money, uh, I have opened up a, a public store, Celluloid Fever Dreams. Uh, I've actually got to get a few more things done for that. Uh, Work's just been crazy between that and everything else. Uh, In fact, I'm wearing my favorite design now. Uh, And I'm running a special this week. If you buy one product at full price, I'll allow you to buy another one at the same price. Uh, That's going to wrap it up for this week. Uh, Next week, as I said, Blazing Saddles. Uh, You can choose to be a lot of things in life. Kind is one of the better ones. Uh, But until next time, uh, I have been Wyndham Jennings. This has been Celluloid Fever Dreams, and I'm going to be saving you a seat. See ya.